to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The April 2023 issue is devoted to articles about enteral nutrition. Today, we want to focus on a paper entitled, Choosing Wisely, Enteral Feeding Tube Selection, Placement, and Considerations Before and Beyond the Procedure Room. Joining me today is the lead author of the paper, Cynthia Reddick. Cynthia is a registered dietitian and a home to feeding expert, educator, and strategist in Sacramento, California. So thank you, Cynthia, for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jeanette. So before we start our discussion, Cynthia, do you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share with our audience? Yes, I am a consultant for Avenos Medical. Thank you, Cynthia. So when our readers read through this paper that you and your co-authors have written, it's very clear that you guys are experts in this topic. So tell us a little bit about where and how you gained your knowledge about feeding tube. And then secondly, what advice would you give to a nutrition support practitioner who wants to become knowledgeable and be a resource for enteral nutrition, really kind of beyond the basics of choosing appropriate types and amounts of enteral formula? This is such a great question, and thank you for asking it, because I did not start out on my dietitian journey really knowing much about feeding tubes. In fact, when I was young in my career, newer, working in the hospital setting, working in nursing homes, it was not something I was fluent in by any stretch. In fact, I would say that I it didn't even feel like it was in my scope of practice, so it really became something that I got curious about after I started in home care. And when I was working in the hospital, I I didn't really ever think about the patient journey beyond the hospital doors. I, I knew I had a heavy load. I had things to tackle, you know, when my patient was in the facility. And I, I didn't think a whole lot beyond that, but once I got into home care, it became very necessary to have a better understanding of feeding tubes, how they worked, how to troubleshoot them. I would say troubleshooting problems, things like complaints of leaky tubes and things of that nature became the impetus that really got me into getting a little more hands-on that way. I needed to make sure that, you know, our supplies in home care connected to their supplies at home, right? So making sure that the, the feeding supplies and accessories were actually connecting properly to the device that they had placed. So it just became this curiosity leading to an evolution of gaining knowledge through experience. So I found a mentor. I asked a lot of questions. There was a lot of hands-on. I think back to I think back to one of the first times I went to a conference. So this is probably something that a lot of people can relate to. I went to a conference and in the expo hall, there was, you know, the feeding tube manufacturers with all these tubes and devices sort of spread out and on display. And I was really hesitant to ask a lot of questions because I didn't want to look uneducated. I didn't want to look like I didn't know what I was doing. So it was a, a little bit tentative about asking questions. But when I got into home care, I was forced into overcoming that and really gaining hands-on, one-on-one experience with them from the manufacturers, also with the patients themselves, like having the patients explain exactly what their problems were and then having to do some hands-on troubleshooting that way. So to answer your second question, what advice would I give a new nutrition support practitioner 
who wants to expand their knowledge in this realm, I would say get curious. Uh, one of my favorite things to recommend to clinicians that work in the hospital is to sit in on a bedside teach. So when you've got a home care company clinician who's coming in to prepare a patient for discharge, I encourage you to sit and watch that teaching and see all the things that go into that. Everything from how to operate the equipment that the patient goes home with to watching how they're educated on how to do tube site care and how to refill supplies even because that plays a role in, in that patient experience. I would encourage practitioners to observe a two placement procedure. So especially if they're working in a hospital, you have a lot of access potentially to observing those procedures and make that part of your professional development, let's call it. I would also meet with tube manufacturer reps. So these tube manufacturer reps are making sales calls in the interventional radiology departments and the endoscopy suites in your hospital. And they're experts on their devices and they can teach you and they have a lot of educational materials to teach you A to Z on tubes, everything from how they're placed to the different aspects of the tube, whether they're low profile devices or standard profile devices. They have a lot of great material because they're educating the staff that's in those procedure rooms and they can educate you as well. I would also meet the teams that are placing feeding tubes in your facility. So this is something that you can do locally is get to know the endoscopy teams, the interventional radiology teams, the nurses, even the techs that are involved in supply management, they can introduce you to the different types of devices that are being placed in each of those departments. Get to know your home care colleagues. So those clinicians that I was telling you about that come in and do bedside teaching, whether it's a nurse from a home health agency or a dietitian from a home tube feeding company, Get to know those colleagues because they can give you a lot of insight about what's important to patients after they leave the facility. That's great advice, Cynthia. Thank you. Kind of as we move along then, I want to kind of shift our focus to talking about the patients because I think a lot of times as nutrition support practitioners, we can identify or we know when enteral nutrition is indicated and will benefit a patient. However, because patients and families are not always familiar with enteral nutrition, we need to get their input as well. So if they need a feeding tube, especially long-term, how do we get our patients ready for that enteral nutrition journey? And what are some questions we should be asking the patients and caregivers when we're trying to determine their readiness for having a feeding tube placed? Oh, wow. Well, in my perfect world, um, I would have access to that patient prior to the procedure. So I think about the outpatient setting as a really good example of that when it's a planned tube placement and there's some involvement from ancillary teams prior to that tube placement. So there may be a disease progression that you're seeing as an oncology dietitian or as an ALS clinician that is meeting with the patient, helping them, you know, navigate decrease in appetite or other problems with swallowing potentially. And now it's time to have a discussion around this option for nutrition support. So having a feeding tube place. And I would say in my, in my, again, my perfect world, I would want to meet with that patient ahead of time. And there's a variety of reasons for that. And introducing to them to what a feeding tube looks like, how it's designed, how it's placed. 
I would say that there's a tremendous amount of fear in a patient and their caregiver because they don't have a lot of understanding about what's involved. If you think about the way we use language around feeding tubes and feeding bags and pumps, we use it very comfortably and sort of nonchalant. But for a patient, their closest translation to what we're talking about would be something like an ostomy bag. And maybe they don't have an understanding of of what exactly is involved. So you can demystify that with a little pre-procedure education with a demo tube, with a video of what it looks like to actually do a feeding. So like introducing them to this idea of a bolus feeding or a gravity feeding, or if we know that they're gonna need a pump, introducing them to what that feeding pump might look like ahead of time. And, And what you will observe is a tremendous decrease in the amount of anxiety going in to the procedure, and then a faster uptick and uptake of the information post-procedure. It's a little bit less of of an assault of information or a barrage of information. It's a very overwhelming time for patients after they have a feeding tube placed, and getting a lot of that education to sink in post-procedure uh, is a little bit of a is a little bit of a challenge. So if you can start some of it beforehand and then finish up with some of the more nuanced education after procedure and as they're preparing to go home, that's really an ideal scenario. But you know, of course, many patients have an unplanned event or a surprise diagnosis, and then suddenly they're ushered through our healthcare system, and three days later they have a feeding tube and they're discharging home, and it all happened so quickly. So that's when we really work hard to circle the wagons and pull together clinical support and education to get them off to the best start possible. I would say something else to consider as it relates to their readiness for a feeding tube, and it's something we have to think about. Well, there's a couple things to think about. One is what does their insurance look like? It's not something that we're always thinking about at the time of the tube placement, but something to think about if they're going to be going home with that feeding tube. And then also, what do they have available as it relates to support and care in the home setting? So would they be independent in that feeding tube administration on their own? Or is it something that they would rely on a caregiver to do? And is that caregiver willing to do that? And then lastly, making sure that the home is a safe environment for this nutrition support option. So Cynthia, one of the things that you and your co-authors did a really good job about was to talk about categories and uh, to think about when you're choosing a feeding tube for a patient. So I want our readers to go and read that, but we're going to do kind of a rapid fire thing here where I'm going to give you the category and you tell me some highlights or an important tip that we need to know about that category when we're thinking about choosing feeding tube access. Okay. So the first category was the the function and the purpose of the tube. What would you want us to know about that? Yes. So have an understanding of what the access device will be used for. So don't assume that all feeding tubes are used for feeding. So keep in mind that some are used strictly for medication and hydration. Some feeding tubes are placed for venting purposes or drainage purposes, or may have a combination use for feeding and venting and draining. All of these types of things may play a role in the type of device that is selected for placement. 
The next category was the physical ability of the patient. What do you mean by that? So it's important to evaluate what the patient lifestyle would look like at home with the tube. You know, we when we see our patients in the hospital, everybody is lying in bed. Uh, everybody's not, you know, quite feeling the way they would be at home after they're feeling better or after their procedure and they peel from that. So you have to think, is this patient going to be bed bound at home versus somebody who will have an active life with a feeding tube. So for instance, I'll tell you about a patient of mine who had a feeding tube placed. It was a standard profile tube, what patients sometimes refer to as a dangler style tube. So it's a G-tube that sort of hangs out, has a little bit of length hanging out of the stoma. And he's an active guy. Although he's 65 years old, he travels, he works full time. He drives all over Northern California in his car doing these things. And when he's at home, he's very busy woodworking and, and working in a shop restoring cars. So for his lifestyle, that dangler style or standard profile tube is really not the best option for him. So although we may not be able to find the perfect match for a patient's physical ability or lifestyle at home, at the time of placement, it's something to consider when it's time for that tube replacement. So the next factor is mental capacity and age. How does that weigh into our decisions? This is something to consider because if the patient is likely to pull on or play with the tube simply because it's there, sort of hanging out of them, then the option of securing that tube very well or perhaps using a low profile option may be a better choice than, say, a standard profile tube. What socioeconomic factors do we need to take into account? Okay, so this is an important consideration when we're dealing with uninsured or underinsured patients who could very possibly experience a financial burden with certain aspects of home enteral nutrition, not only the formula, but the supplies as well. So for instance, if a patient is pump feeding, which is often used with J-tubes, they would have a larger share of cost or copay, say, than a gravity or bolus feeding, which we see more commonly used with gastrically placed tubes. So keeping that in mind, I think is important. And then also if a patient has to pay for their own replacement tubes, the cost of a low profile tube is significantly more than a standard profile tube, upwards of three times the cost, and not to mention the expense of the extension sets. So these all come into play and not to say that if you, you know, make a decision at the start of this tube feeding journey that it can't be changed later on with a, a more appropriate device because things change along the way. These are all important things to consider. The next category is ethical considerations. What are some of those parameters that we should think about? Yes, um, a discussion should occur with the patient, with their family on some of these ethical considerations, especially when you're dealing with patients at the end of life. If the, the patient is not able to participate in that discussion, advanced directives should be reviewed and these and patient preferences should be taken into careful consideration. So I can give you a couple of examples of this just in my own personal experience. Both my mother and my father at the end of their lives, both were posed with this decision of 
do I want a feeding tube or do I not? So with my dad, he had a durable power of attorney for healthcare that was very clearly explained exactly what he wanted done. And although we didn't know at the time of the tube placement, it, he was closer to the end of his life than we realized. I knew that he wanted everything done. So there was really no question whatsoever when it came to make the decision to place a feeding tube. I knew that's what he wanted. And so that's what we did. And then about a month later, things changed and we realized that it was not going to make a difference in his outcome. And so that's when he was transitioned into hospice care and that tube was, the tube feeding was discontinued. So in the case with my mother, she had an opportunity to make a decision about nutrition support during an admission to the hospital for failure to thrive. And she declined feeding tube placement. She knew very clearly that that was not something that she wanted. And so we respected that decision for her at the end of her life. The last consideration that you listed in your paper were religious and cultural preferences. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so some cultures prefer that physicians make the decisions uh, independent of the patient and family. So family members don't want to be involved in that decision making, where others may prefer, you know, the family be making that decision. In my experience in working in home care, is there are some cultures that will do whatever it takes to feed a patient. And so, for instance, in San Francisco, there is a, a large Chinese population, and everything around the care of their elderly involves feeding the patient. Even the insurance companies that support that patient population have very liberal coverage for enteral nutrition in the home space. It's in alignment with that cultural belief. Of course, there are some decisions that are made that may be different than that cultural moral or cultural preference. Sometimes the individuals themselves will, will take on their own decision-making, but as a whole, that's been my observation. So we're done with that section, kind of that rapid fire looking at those, but I want to again tell our readers, please go back to this paper. There's a lot of details in there, um, and there are especially details on placement options of all different kinds of tubes, including the short and long-term tubes. And while I think most hospital practitioners understand the types and placement of temporary tubes, such as nasogastric and nasointestinal tubes, not everyone is as familiar with the longer-term tubes like the gastrostomies and jejunostomies. So I want to focus on this for a minute. So first of all, Cynthia, which patients are going to be candidates for those types of ostomy tubes and, and what would be some contraindications for those? So patients who have a long-term need, which generally we think of exceeding a month or two of nutrition support, should be considered for a gastrostomy or jejunostomy tube. And contraindications include patients with an altered GI anatomy, say from a prior GI surgery, patients who are obese or have ascites or a coagulopathy, and patients who are on peritoneal dialysis. Okay, and I think, Cynthia, for, for clarification, I want to ask, like, if somebody has a coagulopathy, if that's something that's correctable, then they could go forward with the ostomy. It would just have to be something that's persistent, like ascites that may preclude the, the gastrostomy or jejunostomy. Is that correct? That's correct, exactly. So 
you have a lot of experience. And so share with us, what are some tips that you have learned that help our patients have an improved experience with their tubes? For example, you've been talking about those standard long dangling tubes versus the low profile. What can we do to help our patients have a better experience? Yeah, this is a great question. I'll, I'll address the low profile versus standard profile tube options first. And then I'll offer some other ideas around how to improve that long-term experience with the feeding tube. So I think it's common practice to use low profiles in the pediatric population. I think most people are used to seeing it. It's almost an expectation that pediatric patients have low profile tubes, sometimes referred to as buttons. It's basically built into protocols in most cases. And, and we expect to see them in this population. And there is this culture of frequent follow-up and clinic visits and resizing as the patient grows. And in my observations in home care, this includes seeing orders that include that replacement every three months. So it's a very common practice that way. I would say in the adult and more senior populations, there's a bit of a different experience and it, it relates to the tube selection as well as the follow-up as a whole. We have, you know, much more diverse population with fewer aggregators or physicians who are used to managing feeding tubes. So unless this adult patient is being followed by a team that has a lot of experience with feeding tube placement and management, then we tend to see standard profile tubes placed. And it, it is often up to the patient to advocate for themselves for something different. So something that fits into their lifestyle a little bit better. So like my example that I explained earlier where my patient was sort of too busy for this dangling tube um, hanging out that he had to worry about when he was woodworking. So I found that an important role that I had as a home care clinician was really to educate patients about their options beyond what they currently had in place and also educating them about their ability to self-advocate. So this really led me to one of my passions, which is educating dietitians and nurses about the home patient's tube feeding expense and how they as clinicians can play a role in improving that patient journey. So back to the second part of your question, which was what helps a patient have an improved experience with their tube in the long term? I would say that, you know, we need to make sure that the patient knows to do several key things. So properly cleaning and caring for their tube and tube site, including flushing, and how to prevent and troubleshoot cleaning. Those are, I would say, the two main things that we can do to help them improve their experience. Other than those two things, do you have any other tips or tactics that we should know to help prevent complications and reduce the need for those patients to have those tubes replaced? Yeah, so proper flushing, like I talked about, making sure that the tube is sized appropriately for the patient. So if it's a low-profile tube, making sure that that fits their stoma and there's not a lot of extra movement causing things like hypergranulation or leakage at the tube site, making sure that the internal balloon is inflated properly. For patients that have standard profile tubes, making sure that it is the external bolster is set properly and that tube is not sliding in and out and in and out, again, causing hypergranulation or leading leakage. So I'd say the proper sizing 
and placement of the bolster is really key to making sure that we're not having constant complications that lead to either unnecessary replacement or interventions that require them going into the hospital. Wrapping up, I want to again get back to our patients and how do we empower our patients to learn more about their enteral nutrition therapy, including the tubes, the formula administration, and, and what resources do you provide for your patients that we should be looking at to share with our patients as well? There are a tremendous amount of online resources for patients these days, and it can be really overwhelming. So I would direct a patient to their home tube feeding company first, especially if they have a clinical RD team supporting their journey. Their local community resources will vary tremendously. So start local with hospital and clinic RDs uh, and branch out from there. And I have to mention the Oli Foundation as one of my favorite consumer-based resources. Clinicians and patients, they can learn a lot from the resources at Oli.org, which is O-L-E-Y.org, and has a wealth of information housed on their website. They offer consumer forums, support groups, uh, conferences that can, I call them consumers, we call them patients in the hospital, we call them consumers in home care, so that there are conferences that consumers can attend in person or virtually. And I have witnessed term tube feeding patients' lives change after connecting with their peers, fellow tube feeders, and having access to experts in the field of nutrition support to help guide their journey. The Feeding Tube Awareness Foundation is another fabulous resource, and they cater to the pediatric patient and their families and caregivers. They can be found at feedingtubeawareness.org. And I think it's important for clinicians who care for fed patients to familiarize themselves with these organizations so they can share this information with their patients early in that patient's tube feeding journey because it can be a really lonely feeling to suddenly have this feeding tube at home and connection and support is critical to their overall success and well-being, in my opinion. I want to emphasize, too, that those resources are good for us as practitioners as well, because that's actually where I discovered Cynthia when she was speaking at one of the Oli virtual conferences, and she did a fabulous job with her presentation, and hence followed up, and uh, she wrote this article, and here we are on this podcast. So um, just want to, again, encourage people that those resources are there for you as well. So before we close today, Cynthia, are there any other comments that you want to share with our listeners today? Yes, I am grateful for this question, Jeanette. So thank you for asking. I think it's notable that we are recording this on National Registered Dietitian Day. So I really want to acknowledge the outstanding work by my RD colleagues who contributed to this paper and really brought their priceless home care perspective to this collaboration. So June Greaves, Janelle Flaherty, Lindsay Callahan, Kara Larimer, and Sarah Allen. I really hope that this inspires more RDs to get curious about feeding tubes, to learn as much as possible about these devices and insert themselves into the tube-fed patient journey beyond the aspects of calories and formula and consider it well within their scope of practice as a registered dietitian. Well, I want to thank you, Cynthia, for sharing your expertise with all of our listeners today. There's a lot of good information here. 
I also want to invite our listeners to learn more about this topic, as well as other papers on enteral nutrition, both on access and formulas in the April 2023 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Jeanette.